Let's go ahead and find our seats. We're going to get started. As Jeff said, thanks for being here today. Um, we're, we're, we're glad you chose to, to spend the morning with us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We've, we're, we're closing out our series on family portraits. In fact, this, this is the last final installment of that series. We've been in the Old Testament the entire time until this morning, so we're going to make our way to the New Testament here in, in 2 Timothy. And as I've told you these past couple of weeks, next Sunday we're beginning a new series going through the book of Acts. Um, and in that study we're, we're going to learn how to have a passion for the mission. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I, hope, I hope this Family Portraits series has been worthwhile. I hope the Lord's taught you on that, and I hope you're excited about what's to come and, 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 and preparing your heart, asking the Lord to prepare your heart for all that He's going to show us out of the book of Acts. So come prepared for that next week. But today I want to close out uh, our family portraits by talking about the love of a father. That's the title for today's message, The Love of a Father. And I specifically want to show you how that love should be expressed. Now, in spite of that title and, and, and that description, um, please know that this message, I believe, does have broad applicability. So if, if you're not a father, don't tune me out. If, if you are a father, you, you listen in. But if you're not a father, don't tune me out. Because first of all, the message applies to any type of relationship. The expressions of love that we're going to look at today at some level apply to marital relationships, friend relationships, really any type of relationship where biblical love is involved. But then second, the focus of today's study is on a spiritual relationship and not a physical one. The family portrait that we're going to illuminate is Paul expressing his love to his spiritual son, his son in the faith, Timothy. And that's what Paul calls him in, in the book of 1 Timothy, the first letter that he wrote to, to Timothy. Look at what he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He calls him my own Son in the faith, and I believe this to be important because while everything we've studied up to this point has been directly related to the physical family, I don't want you to miss the significance of our spiritual family and spiritual relationships, discipling relationships, spiritual sons and daughters. And I don't want you to miss that because God doesn't want you to miss that. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, and while he, he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him and told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of the Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother." And those are some pretty strong words. I mean, especially with his physical mom and, and brothers right outside. I mean, they maybe could have heard him. You know, who knows? You know, Jesus was the most gracious man to ever live, but he could be cold-blooded too. I mean, a couple chapters earlier in Matthew 10, verses 35 through 37, he said, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father. And the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And certainly there's some doctrinal messaging in those verses related to who Jesus is as the Son of God, but it also shows us the importance of spiritual matters even as it relates to family. And when it comes to the relationship that Paul had with Timothy, it went as deep or deeper than blood. Paul loved Timothy as his own son. And he expresses that explicitly in our text this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, but, but if we just jump, in, jump into it already, at the very beginning of verse 2, he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. He calls him his own son in the faith in 1 Timothy, and here he calls him his dearly beloved son. And, and listen, that is a strong phrase. In fact, the word beloved is used throughout the Bible to describe a deep and attached love. Its first use in the New Testament is when God calls Jesus his beloved son at his baptism. You find that in Matthew 3.17, which says, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's the God the Father speaking about God the Son. So any comparison to the love that God the Father has for God the Son, that signifies a pretty strong love. And that was the love that Paul had for Timothy. And because Paul loved Timothy so much, Timothy was the recipient of Paul's final recorded letter. I don't believe that to be any coincidence at all. And 2 Timothy is Paul's you know, swan song, so to speak, his final instructions. And he absolutely knew it. There was no question about that. He knew he was at the very end of his life. We see that at the end of this book in chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And, and he's talking about his departure, and, and, and Paul wasn't getting ready to leave on a jet plane. He was about to be beheaded. And his departure from this earth was at hand. He was in prison in Rome at this time. as the second time he had been in prison in Rome. You see that in, in chapter 1, verse 8, where he's telling Timothy, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. He talks about being in chains down in verse 16 of that same chapter, chapter 1. So this, this was it. Paul was nearing the end of his life. There was no doubt about that. He completely understood that. Because of that, he had some final words that he wanted to say to his son. And because they're his last words, it gives them some extra emphasis. Now, they obviously aren't more important than any other words of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, so they're all on the same level as far as that's concerned. But they do have a special context. It's like the last words of Moses that you find in Deuteronomy chapters 32 and chapters 33, the last words of Joshua and Joshua chapter 24, the last words of David, the Psalms and 2 Samuel 23. They have a different emphasis and, and they're quite powerful. And I think it's interesting that what, he, what we find him talking about at the end of his life to his son. Because really the two themes of 2 Timothy are the preaching of God's word and the suffering that comes along with that. And that was Paul's emphasis at the end of his life. And in this letter, Paul was telling Timothy this. He was saying, Tim, when, when they kill me for, for preaching God's word, which, which they are about to do, take my place. Take my place in both the preaching 
and the suffering. You see, Paul was inviting his son in the faith to come die with him. He was inviting his son in the faith to come die with him. Not physically, but spiritually. But because of that request, he starts out this letter by expressing just how much he loves Timothy. And listen, this is very important. Is actually because of that love that Paul is calling Timothy to that end. It's because he loves him so much. You see, those that we love the most, we want the best for. And Paul knew exactly what was best. And what is best is not accolades in this life. It is accolades in the life to come. And that's what he wanted for his son. So Paul sets up this entire letter here at the beginning by expressing his love to Timothy as his spiritual father and, and all that he's calling him towards. So let's look at it together. Let's, let's go ahead and, and, and read verses 1 through 5. We're gonna, we'll pick it up in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so these first two verses are, are a very typical introduction from Paul. They're somewhat condensed, but, but typical. He quickly introduces himself. He gives us you know, who, the, who he wrote the letter to, who the addressee of the letter. So that's typical. But what follows is, is less typical. Not all of it, but, but for the most part, it's less typical than what we see in Paul's other letters. So pick it up in verse 3. He's talking to his dearly beloved son. He says, I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing of remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Okay, so that's the, that's the verses. Those three verses are really where we're going to focus our study this morning. And we're going to examine Paul's expressions of love in these three succinct verses. But before we do that, let's go to the uh, Lord in prayer and ask him to guide our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we, we're grateful to be here today. We're so thankful uh, for you, uh, first and foremost. We're so thankful uh, that you sent your son to die for us, and, and, and Lord, we have now an opportunity to spend eternity with you, and, and we're so thankful that you've given us your word, that we have a, a completed, preserved word that has everything in it that we need, and we're so thankful for that, that we know how and, uh, and, and have a guide to live our lives uh, for your glory, and so Lord, I pray that you use it in our life this morning, Lord, your your word is, is what does the work in our life. There's nothing else. It's your, it's, it's your word, the Holy Spirit inside us as, as we put the word in us. And, and so, Lord, I pray that, that you do that today, that, that you work in our hearts, and, Lord, that you're glorified through it. I pray that everything that's said is, is true to your word. I pray that you're honored in all that we do uh, and say today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, verses 3 through 5, where we're going to focus our study, because they show us specifically Paul's love and Paul's loyalty to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he expresses his love in three very distinct ways. And these three expressions of love are absolutely the way we should express our love 
to our children, certainly as fathers to, to sons, but obviously beyond that, both physical children and spiritual children. That was the case here with Paul and Timothy. But again, it applies to other areas in life. I think it has broad applicability. And now, let me say, I'm not saying that these are the only ways that we are to express our love. I'm not saying that. But certainly, we should show our love in these ways, in these three ways that we're going to talk about. And it starts with, with Paul expressing his love through faithful prayers. Through faithful prayers. We see that specifically in verse 3, a little bit also in verse 2. But, but look at verse 3 again. Paul says to Timothy, I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. And now that right there is real intercession. He is praying for his spiritual son, his son in the faith, Timothy, without ceasing. He is praying for him night and day, every day. He is consistent. He is faithful in his prayers. And, and why is that? Well, it's because he loves Timothy. And so listen, if, if you are a person of faith, then you pray for those that you love. Or at least I hope you do, because if you don't pray for those that you love, I question how much you love them. And this point gets to how we pray and when we pray and what we think of prayer. Because if the only time you pray is when you're on your knees, you don't pray much. If the only time you pray is when you're at church, then you don't pray much. You see, Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, most of you should have it memorized. What's it say? Pray without ceasing. He told the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And now he's telling Timothy that's exactly what I do for you. I pray for you without ceasing, night and day. So to fulfill this level of faithful praying for loved ones, that means some things. It means you have to learn to pray when you have insomnia. It means you have to learn to pray when you're walking or driving or working. I, I do some of my best praying in my car. This means you, you always have the line open that you don't have to spend time dialing. That you're in fellowship, you have constant communion with the Lord. Listen, prayer, the faithful praying, that is the mark, one of the marks of a spiritual person. When the Lord wanted to prove to Ananias that the persecutor Saul was really saved, here is the instruction he gave him in Acts chapter 9 verse 11. So if you know the context, so you know, Acts chapter 9 is the, the Damascus road. The Lord himself comes down, saves Paul, who or was Saul at the time, who was a persecutor of the church. And now he's telling Ananias, hey, you know, you need to go disciple this guy. Well, you know, at first, you know, first thought, I'm sure Ananias is like, well, yeah, he's going to kill me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to find him. He's trying to find me. This, is, this isn't good. But, but look at what the Lord said. Verse 11, and the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street, which is called straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. He told Ananias, the way you will know that I've changed him, the way that you will know that he is a real Christian, that he is no longer the Saul of old, is that you will see him praying. And that's a powerful statement. And we show our love and we show our Christian character one way, by praying for others. And that's a key distinction because many of us 
are faithful prayers when it comes to praying for ourselves. We pray for our needs and, 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 and our desires and, and our hurts all the time. But when it comes to others, well, well sometimes that faithfulness wanes. I mean, I, I have a lot going on that the Lord needs to know about. And I don't have time to necessarily tell him about others' needs. Well, listen, if you only pray selfish prayers, how well are you loving others? I mean, the answer is not well. And we are called to that end in our relationships, to be faithful prayers. But when you do love others and you do live a spirit-filled life, then prayer for them is a natural outflow. You desire, you want to go to the Lord on behalf of those you love all the time, night and day. Psalm 55, 17 says, evening and morning and at noon will I pray. I cry aloud, he shall hear my voice. Acts 6, 4 so it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Luke 18, 1, he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Listen, the, the truth is we're, we're all very well aware of this. We all face challenges in this life. And, and that includes the people we love. They face challenges. I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I really learned how to pray until I had teenagers. And, and then I learned. I learned. I learned what praying without ceasing, praying night and day meant. But God has given us this gift and privilege of prayer for that reason, because we all need it. Those that we love need it. You see, no matter how difficult the challenge is, no matter how formidable the enemy, no matter how hard the victory, men ought always to pray and not faint. So when it comes to dealing with struggles, either yours or those of a loved one, really those are the two options. You can pray or you can faint. You can take it to and give it over to the Lord or you can try to handle it yourself. And if you try to handle it yourself, do you know what the result will be? You will faint. And that is a huge problem that we face today in the context of this, this, this desire of the Lord, this command of the Lord for us to pray without ceasing, to be faithful, to pray night and day. That's a challenge for us today. And, and what I see a lot, even in my own life, is that we're, when something happens, we're very diligent. And we'll pray without ceasing. We'll pray night and day for someone or for something over and over and over every day for a while. And then we grow weary when we, when we don't see things change in particular. And so we faint, especially when we don't get an answer in an acceptable time frame for us. Because everything in our culture moves us to expect things to happen quickly. We are the victim of the 22-minute sitcom, and we can't even sit through commercials anymore. We're a microwave popcorn society, and we just believe that things ought to happen quickly. And when they don't happen quickly, we don't really know how to endure. We don't read big books anymore. We only have time for blog posts and articles. I mean, schools don't even require kids to read big books anymore. I mean, 
They know kids can't endure that. 500 pages? Are you kidding me? Preachers don't preach long sermons anymore. At least at most churches don't. We don't have to comment on mine. (laughs) But Bible colleges and seminaries, they teach in preaching classes to keep sermons to 20 minutes or less. Because people will not endure. They can't concentrate that long. And yet... There are things and people that we need to be praying for, that we need to be praying over, that require us to wait. It requires us to wait, to be patient, to endure. And listen, because that is how God set it up. And that waiting brings tension. But in the midst of that tension, do you know what God wants us to do? to pray without ceasing, to trust in him. And if we're not careful, in that tension between our belief that that, that something should have already happened and the knowledge that it hasn't, in that tension, that is where we are tempted to sin because we are tempted to quit, to faint. And according to 1 Samuel 12, verse 23, that is a sin. Look at the very words of Scripture. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. In what? Ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and right way. Because we are to pray without ceasing for others. And I want you to notice that it is a sin against the Lord. Not even a sin against that other person. And it's a sin against the Lord because it signifies a lack of trust in him or it signifies a disagreement with his lack of answering. The fact that he's taken too long. And that can lead to unhealthy and sinful attitudes about yourself, about God, about your circumstances, about prayer. And we can begin to interpret things based on our experience, based on our feelings. We begin to interpret who God is and how he feels about us or whether or not he loves us, all based on how long it's taking for God to answer our prayers. And we can begin to to interpret who we are in God's sight based on whether or not God's coming through for us in our prayer. And if he doesn't come through, in our mind, we might question and ask, does God really love me? Am I even a child of God? All because it's taken a while. And because of perspective. Because think about it. When it comes to our prayers, there are two perspectives. There's one from earth, us to him, and then one from heaven, his view down. There's our perspective and God's perspective. And we only consider our perspective. We just consider what we can see. But God sees it all. And you see this very clearly with the nation of Israel. This is, a, this is a great passage, a great example. And it's when God decides to bring them out of Egypt. It's at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And again, pay attention to the very words of God. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 says, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. 
Okay, so we see these, both, these two perspectives in this passage. So verse 23 is the perspective from earth. They cried unto the Lord because of the bondage that they were in. And then verse 24 and 25 include the perspective from heaven. And this is great because God heard, God remembered, God looked upon them, and God had respect unto them. See, God doesn't ignore prayers. But the key is the phrase at the beginning of verse 23. Go back to verse 23. Look at how it starts. <clears throat> and it came to pass in what? The process of time. It came to pass in the process of time. It didn't happen all at once. And God has a time frame that many times is different than ours. And in that process of time, he's trying to do some things. He's trying to teach us and he's trying to mold us. Maybe he's even working those that are against us. We don't know that perspective. We don't know the perspective from heaven. But it's there. You see, the Israelites had been in bondage for years. I'm quite confident had been praying for years. And it was a process of time for God to answer. And some things even had to happen on the Egyptian side. It was a process of time. And just because we live in the 21st century and we no longer have patience, that does not mean that we are owed something different from the Lord. We are not. So don't sin against the Lord in this way. Don't fall for the trick of our enemy, Satan. Listen, he doesn't want you praying. I promise you that. And therefore, in, in these ways that we've been talking about, he's corrupted our philosophy of prayer. He's corrupted the doctrine of prayer in our mind. So don't fall for it. Stay prayed up so you don't have to play catch up. Listen to these verses, Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray. And she enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke 21, 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Colossians 4.2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 1 Peter 4.7, but, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We're called to be a faithful prayer, to watch and pray, to pray without ceasing, Man, especially for our children, both physical and spiritual. So don't stop. Keep praying for them. And listen, keep praying for them at good times and in bad because our prayer shouldn't only be for them when something bad's going on during times of struggle, right? It should be constant, it should be faithful without ceasing. So that means even when times are good. Even in Paul's prayer for Timothy, he starts with being thankful for him. He starts, verse 3, I thank God. He thanks God for Timothy. And, and what does he thank him for specifically? That he has remembrance of him. He thanks God that he has memories with Timothy. And that prompts him to pray even more for him. And that principle should apply to us as well. That thank God for the good times, the memories that we have with our children. Then use those as a prompting to take them to the Lord constantly for the other things. So the first expression of Paul's fatherly love to Timothy was through his faithful prayers. But then we see a second expression of love, and this is through fellowship pursuit. Through fellowship pursuit. So not only did Paul 
pray for Timothy. He longed to have fellowship with Timothy, and he was pursuing that. Look at verse 4. He said he was greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. You see, Paul was in prison, but he said it would fill him with joy if he could just see Timothy. It was something that he greatly desired. He asked the same thing of Timothy a couple more times in this book. Four chapters, and, and we see this multiple times. In 2 Timothy 4, 9, he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. And then down in verse 21, it says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. See, Paul had a special attachment to Timothy because he had trained him as a son in the ministry. And I know firsthand from both a physical and spiritual perspective just what a blessing that is. That there is a bond that forms through that relationship that is irreplaceable. And listen, this bond didn't just form because they were fishing buddies. They weren't just golfing partners. No, it went way deeper than that. And listen, it has to. This bond that Paul and Timothy had was forged between two men because they were united together in ministry. And, and so let me just tell you, ministry is where true biblical fellowship starts and exists. The world talks about friendship and fraternities, but the world knows little about either one. We talk about fellowship, and the thing that makes it so strong is we not only have it horizontally with each other, but we and the Timothys underneath us have it vertically back to God who is giving us the ministry together. And you say, how do you know that's the way it was? How do you know that Paul and Timothy were that close? It's because of what Paul said in verse 4, being mindful of thy tears. Paul's mind was full of Timothy's tears. He couldn't get them out of his head. In verse 3, he said, I remember you. And now he's saying, I remember your tears. And Timothy would have, you know, shed those tears when last time they were together and I'm sure when they were departing from each other. But again, it was because of the time that they had spent together in fellowship through ministry, the good times and the bad. The love that they de developed in those times. And listen, true ministry brings that out of us. That is how God designed it. To even to bring us to a point of tears when, when, when we're not together. Paul talks about tears often in his writings. You know, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, Paul said, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Down in verse 31 of that same discourse, he said, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. When Paul wrote his second epistle to the Corinthians, he said this about the first epistle. The first epistle, very harsh. He had to come down in strong rebuke. And this is what he says about writing that epistle in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. And so do you see what prompted those tears? It was his love that he had for the Corinthians. He, he calls the Corinthians his, his spiritual children as well. And then down in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, Paul provided a, a long list of things that proved he was a minister of God. And he ended that list in verse 10. that says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
And so one proof, not, not the only, but one proof of your ministry are the times that you have to stand with tears in your eyes, but joy in your heart. And sorrowing, but not depressed, still rejoicing. So tell me what you cry over, and I'll tell you how good of a minister you are. Now, I didn't say how often you cry. I said, tell me what you cry over, and I'll tell you how good of a minister you are. And I know it's not a popular thing to talk about crying, especially among men. The truth is, I cry more than I used to, and I hate it. I don't like it. I don't want to, but I know that that is also because of pride. I'm well aware of that. But I think there is enough biblically to say that tears are an indicator of something when, when they come in the context of the fellowship we have in ministry. Because listen, there are, there are great highs and there are great lows that come in, in, in ministering with people and dealing with lives. And, and you see it all and when you pour your life into someone and and man, that the bond that's formed, and if, when the, if that bond is ever broken, or when you see them going through different things, um, man, there's something special that God does there. And and I and I and like I said, I think there's enough biblically in tears to know that that there's something about them. I mean, again, not everything. I'm not talking about. It doesn't matter how often you cry. Some people I think cry too much, and I think it's crazy. But it doesn't. That's not even matter. It's just what. What, what you cry over, what your mind does in those times. Psalm 56, 8 says, Thou tellest me my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? That's, an interesting, that's certainly an interesting verse. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And listen, all of this, this, this aspect of dealing with, with that, things that bring in ministry that bring us to tears, is all because there is something very big about our ministry with each other to the Lord and our suffering for Him, especially with others in fellowship together. And the Lord doesn't take that lightly. And, and the fact that there's a bottle of tears kept in His book, I don't even know exactly what all that means, but... The fact that, there are te- that our tears can bear precious seeds for the future, it means we're part of something so much bigger than just us. Do you realize that? Because I'm afraid many people don't, and as a result, they live their lives just in their own self-centered circle. And so they won't make themselves vulnerable and put themselves out and, and develop the, the bond that happens in ministry. When you win someone to the Lord, investing your life into them for better or for worse and raising them up and they, they won't do that and so they miss out on the times of joy and pain spent with others serving the Lord in true fellowship. And they miss out on the impact of a life dedicated to the Lord and what it can have on future generations, a life that investing in a son can have on eternity. Paul desired that fellowship with Timothy one more time. He longed to see him again. And we too should long to be with those we love. And sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes God calls them to Hungary. Sometimes God does other things. But we should pursue fellowship with them in ministry. It's, 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 that's how when, when someone like Kale goes to Hungary, that's how you can be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. 
because there's a bond that was formed and you're sad about the departure, but man, you know that we're part of something so much bigger together than just us. And, and, and that time that we can have, even when it's just ministering to, to each other, that's key because that's exactly what was going to happen if Timothy came to see Paul. Paul was in prison. So when Timothy came, it's not like they were going to go out street preaching or do something like that. No, they were simply going to have a, a time together. And Timothy's presence, Paul said, would bring him joy. And in doing so, Timothy would be ministering to Paul, just as Paul ministered to Timothy all those years as an expression of his love. And that's what this gets to. How, how much, how deep does our love go? How self-centered are we, or how deep does our love go for someone else? Because when it comes to the relationships that we have with our children, that we have with our spiritual children, the, the relationships that we have in ministries to this church, love should be the foundation. And, and when it comes to church, love is one of the greatest opportunities that we have. Because, first of all, it's an attribute of God, but it's the fellowship that we have in ministry, it involves bringing people together who might not normally come together. And that gives us a great opportunity to be like God, by loving each other the way God intends. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have love, one to another. And that's displayed by praying, that's displayed by, by, by desiring that fellowship. And that's how Paul expressed his love to Timothy. But then third, he expresses his love one other way. Down in verse 5, and that is through focused praise. Through focused praise. You see, Paul had some praise for Timothy. But he was very focused and very specific on what it was that he praised. And now, now, this is an expression of love that I think does have the most applicability for parents towards children, both physical and, and spiritual, for a father to a son. But that doesn't mean that it's void of applicability in other relationships because it's not. But the obvious application of what I'm going to talk about is related to parenting. So let me show it to you. Look with me at verse 5. Paul says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So, so what we see here is Paul praising Timothy's faith. He called it an unfeigned faith. And unfeigned just means sincere, not fake. And that is something worth praising. Because it's something very important to the Lord. There are enough people out there faking their way through Christianity that when you find a sincere person with a sincere faith, that is something of great value. Paul told Timothy in his first epistle, again, this is another true mark of a true minister. 1 Timothy 1.5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. And again, that's a sincere faith, not a produced faith. It's a true trust in and reliance on God. At the end of the day, this is a hallmark of integrity when the image portrays the reality. It's, it's sincerity without hypocrisy. And this is so important because I believe one of the current diseases of our society in general is deteriorating integrity. This is certainly a, a problem in our society as a large, deteriorating integrity. And the church needs to be different. Christians need to be different. Our kids need to be different. And when Christians lose their integrity, it's because they begin to love themselves over others to the point that their conscience becomes seared and so their faith becomes fake. 
Listen, do you know how many people show up to a church? I'm not saying our church, but show up to a church on Sunday morning but have no interest in being there whatsoever. And they have no desire at all to serve the Lord with their life. If you don't know, it's a lot. More than it should be, that's for sure. And so do you know why we're seeing that in church more and more? Well, one of the reasons, certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons is because as parents, we are teaching our children to value the wrong things. And we do that by praising them for only or mainly physical things. So we are very quick to praise our children for good grades and sporting achievements and other extracurricular activities. We praise them for getting scholarships and good jobs. And, and please, what I hear what I'm saying, it's great to praise them for that. I'm not, I'm not saying stop, oh, no, don't praise them for you know, getting straight A's. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But we have to be careful if that's the only thing we're praising them for. Because if you only praise them for physical things that are of this world, then they will begin to think that the most important things in this life are the physical things that are of the world. When that's all they hear from you, when that's all, all that you praise them about. And so while it's great to praise our children or other loved ones for those physical achievements, it's better to praise them for spiritual achievements. We should be more concerned and most concerned about their faith. So, so please listen to me and hear it in the heart that I'm about to say it in. But if we care more about school and sports than we do faith and fruitfulness, then we care about the wrong things. And we are not loving our children with a biblical love. So let me tell you the best way that you can love your children or love anyone for that matter. So this is the number one way. Invest the word of God into them. Because Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Timothy had people in his life that, was, that were willing to love him enough to give him God's word. Paul certainly did that. Paul loved Timothy and invested God's word into him. And faith resulted. An unfeigned faith resulted. But it wasn't only Paul. We learn from verse 5 that his faith also dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And guess what they did with it? They invested it into Timothy through God's word. And we know that from 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which were able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy knew God's word from childhood. And Paul didn't know Timothy as a child. And while it should have been his father investing in him, it doesn't appear that was the case. It sure looks like it was just his grandmother and mother. We don't know much about Timothy's father, but we do know from Acts 16.1 that he was a Greek. We know that his mother believed, and it looks like based on the structure of this sentence, that his father didn't. Acts 16.1 says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But 
his father was a Greek. So in spite of a wayward father from a spiritual guidance perspective, Timothy still had faith because he had the word of God invested in him. He still knew the Holy Scriptures. And just as a side note, that should give you single mothers or families with absent fathers some hope. Your child's story isn't written because of that situation. It also shows us the power of a godly grandmother and a godly mother. So if you're one of those, please do not discount your influence. Love your children, love your grandchildren by investing the word of God into them. Because as Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain cometh down, the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. His word doesn't return void. He has a purpose every time it's spoken. So keep pumping it into them and trust the Lord with it. And when you see faith in them, praise that. Praise the spiritual things. When they want to go to church, let them and praise them for that. Even if it means they have to miss a practice here or there. What's more important? When they want to get discipled, praise that. Get excited about that because it builds their faith. When they want to do ministry things, praise that. Get excited about that because that is a good thing. I'll be completely honest with you, and, and, and some of you might not like this. But again, take it with the heart in which I'm saying it. My goal, so I'm a parent of, of three children. My goal as a parent is not to build well-rounded kids. Now, I'm obviously not opposed to that. I, I, you know, it would be a great thing if they're well-rounded. That's not my goal. My goal is to build faithful kids. My goal is to build kids that desire to serve the Lord, that love his word. And by the way, as the pastor of this church, that's my goal for your kids too. And that's my goal for you. And you know why? Because I love you. So I desire that you have a faith like Paul and Timothy. Because as Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Let me, let, me, let me read that one more time. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Man, do you want to please him? I hope you do. If you do, you need some faith. And, for, and, and in order to have faith, you need God, God's word in you. And I desire that for you. And the way that we are all going to please him together as, as we display our faith by getting in God's word and expressing our love to others in the way that Paul did to his son Timothy. And certainly towards our children, both physical and spiritual, but, but towards everyone else as well. So we need to be people of prayer. I talk all the time about the importance of our prayer nights. And I'm going to keep doing it until, until you're all here. I'm going to keep saying it. I can't overemphasize it. It's not possible. Why would God do anything for us individually or collectively or in our family if we're unwilling to take time to ask him, to pray for each other? So if you need a change in your life, a change in your relationships, man, get us praying about it. Let's express our love towards each other in that way. 
And then we could take the next step and pursue true, genuine fellowship in Christ through ministry for Christ. That's where real relationships are developed and nurtured. To the point of tears when life takes you there. Because you care that much for the other person and you long to spend that time with them. And then let's focus on what's truly important and praise the right things, encourage the right things. And the right things are spiritual things. Spirit-filled things that lead to spirit-filled living. And when we love our kids that way, and when we love our disciples that way, and when we love each other that way, man, I think we'll see a change. I think we'll see God work mightily in our midst for his own glory. And man, I desire nothing more. He's worth it, and so are you. And so are your children. So quit selling your life and your family short by selling out to this world. A world that hates you, by the way. This is my last time in this series, so I had to say it one more time. So stop living for it and go all in with us together for the Lord. It's a better life, I promise you.